What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals podcast. All right. On this episode, I brought on my friend, again, Bridget Eileen Rivera, who has written the book, Heavy Burdens. There you go. Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. Listen, usually I try and type up some kind of script or just I kind of go through my notes before I start recording. Not necessary for this intro because this book is a must, must read. Bridget has written an amazingly accessible book that I think you can give to all of your evangelical friends that will really help them understand why the LGBTQ plus community is really under threat from the evangelical church. She also does a great job explaining the history of kind of how we got here. Why does the church focus on this issue over so many other issues? It's just such a good book. I truly, friends, I know I recommend a lot of books. Please at least try and get this book from your library. I mean, freaking get the book. It's such a good read. It's so insightful. So Bridget and I talk about the book today. We talk about about some of the contents, some of the chapters, and some of the surprises that for me, I was not ready to learn. Uh, Some of them were heartbreaking. Some of them were shocking as far as how church history views sexual purity. Um, And this is just a really great read. So I recommend the book I'm out now, and the following interview is my time with Bridget talking about the great book that she has written. That being said, I do have another announcement. Now, this one might come as a bomb drop to some of you, so I do have some news, so bear with me, but I am quitting. My day job. Oh my goodness. So exciting. I have put in my notice at my other job, which means I'll be doing new evangelicals full time in just a few weeks. Wow. Okay. There's a whole highlight on our Instagram at new evangelicals where you can watch uh, the whole story and why, why now compared to why later on. Um, But all that to say, I'm going full time. So hopefully our podcast will only get better. Hopefully our our content will only get better. And hopefully our community will only grow. So thank you to everyone who donates, who funds what we do. Because of your generosity, I'm able to leave my other job and focus solely on new evangelicals. If you want to donate to help make more of this content happen, you can click on the notes uh, or the show note link um, in YouTube or wherever you're watching or listening to this podcast. And you can help us out. That would be amazing. Um, Any other announcements? Let me think. No, that's it. All right. Without further ado, here is my interview with Bridget Eileen Rivera. Bridget, I think this is like a new record on the podcast for having you on. I don't think I have had any other guests on this amount of time. So thanks for coming on for, I think it's a third time now. Thank you. I think it might be. Uh, And I've also come for like some of your Zoom groups also. So I mean, every time is always a pleasure. So I'm glad to be back. It's great to have you. Um, you know, you wrote a book, Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. Uh, you were gracious enough to give me uh, an early copy of it. I've been reading it. And um, wow, I'm blown away. We're going to talk about it. But before we get there, why don't you kind of explain a little bit about yourself? Give give the listeners out there some of your background. Yeah, so my name is Bridget Eileen Rivera, and I uh, do a lot of advocacy for LGBTQ people, um, especially in the church. And um, I guess what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring awareness to some of the issues that exist and um, the impact that it has on queer people in the church. And hopefully, 
make things better, hopefully uh, bring the church to a place where it can be a healthy community for queer people, where queer people can find life um, instead of the way things are now, which is many queer people find the church to not be um, a place that is welcoming uh, to the point that um, many um, are driven uh, to suicidal thoughts Hmm. um, as a result of their experiences. And so um, I guess my mission is to change that, to change Hmm. that narrative and make the church a healthier place. I'm currently getting my PhD um, in sociology and my book that's coming out is called heavy burdens, um, which you introduced just a minute ago. And yeah, I'm just talking about the burdens that the church places on, on queer people. Okay. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, you know, like you said, you, you've done a zoom group, uh, with new evangelicals where you let it, it was for the queer folks in our community, you know, who I know, um, it seems like a lot of people in our, um, new evangelicals community maybe are new to this for the first time and allowing themselves to really, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, feel and express feelings that maybe have been, have been repressed for so long. Uh, and so having you do that Zoom group was just, it was very good. It was great. I know we got great yeah. feedback. So thanks for doing that. Um, you know, listen, I don't want to give away your whole book, obviously. People have to go out and buy it to read it. But I'm thinking <laughs> today is kind of like the trailer. You know, we're going to give people like some sneak peeks mm-hmm. on what's inside the book. I, I've told you this a million times. I'll, I'll say it on the record. I, I really love the book. It's great. It's really accessible. I mean, I'm not a very good reader. You know, I'm, I'm not that smart. And being able to read a book and like be engaged for more than like 10 minutes, not checking my phone, that's like an accomplishment, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I, I read it on a plane and I was like, wow, this is great. I have like two chapters left. I like in the book how you first give stories uh, in the beginning of, of, of uh, every chapter, like an actual, here's a story of someone who experienced this in the church. And I love how in, in a lot of ways, the book isn't just about the LGBTQ community. You talk about gender, about um, you know masculinity and and femininity, and how our culture and how our Christian culture puts unnecessary burdens on those things. So I love mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah, I, I want to start here though. One thing that really struck me, especially reading it more recently, is is just how. Um, atrociously, um, some mm-hmm. of the early, um, and even current evangelical leaders that yeah. really have been seen as like pioneers in the white evangelical institution. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Falwell is a big one that comes to mind. How, what they said about, about the queer community is just, frankly, it's reprehensible. And yeah. the fact that, 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 that people have gotten away with that. And it, mm-hmm. it's still to this day, hasn't even, even been like addressed. like, Hey, we should be rethinking what 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 we've said in the past. Um, yeah. It's shocking. Can you kind of dig in a little bit about how your book talks about that? And uh, yeah. in your research, you know, what was it like for you to read this stuff? It had to be shocking. Yeah, it it, it definitely was shocking. I myself didn't realize how bad it was um, mm. until I started digging into this. Obviously, I had some knowledge that. Yeah you know, things, um, had been bad during, uh, the gay civil rights movement, but I didn't have any, uh, real understanding of how far that actually went. Mm. Um, and the depths that the religious right really went to, um, to create this kind of social, cultural, political enemy out of the queer community. And, uh, yeah, you can read, 
uh, from some of these um, founding fathers of the conservative movement of the religious yeah. right. Um, you mentioned Jerry Falwell, um, and he uh, just would exoriate gay people, um, talk outspokenly about how gay people were under God's judgment, yeah. um, how they deserved uh, AIDS. Um, and, you know, you can read other writers who, um, just, you know, explicitly would use gay people, um, as, uh, kind of cultural enemy number one. And, and they are going to come for you and your children. They're going to, um, molest your children and turn them gay and destroy the culture. Um, and it was this narrative that was created during this time. Um, and the purpose was really very clear. The purpose was to win votes. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you can see it, uh, in, in some of the, the writing just very explicit there, there's one, um, particular, uh, 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 letter that I reference in my book that was written um, to gain votes um, against a piece of legislation in California to protect um, employment rights for gay people. Yes. Um, and in this letter, he uh, he basically turns this law that is designed to protect gay people from getting fired, um, turns it into this like assault upon families and like, like puts a picture in the letter of a, of a gay guy and is like, look at this man, look at the nail polish on his fingertips and the earring that he's wearing. Do you want this man teaching your children? Um, because you know, it was employment protection for teachers specifically. And, you know, just like really turning gay people into this kind of like monster for us to be afraid of. And this is why we need to vote for conservative politicians. Otherwise our country is going to be taken over by uh, the, the pedophiles and the rapists. That's, that was the message. It was like so extreme. You look back on this and it's like, how, how could this have been going on? And, you know, people, you know, not thinking that something was off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I I often have wondered those things myself. And then I look at what's happening today and how, you know, a lot of this stuff, we can find those preachers still saying those crazy things and it's just dismissed. It's just dismissed. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of how it happens. People just dismiss it as like, not all Christians, not all evangelicals. And then we look back in history and go, what were we thinking? You know? So I think that's a big part of it. Can you also talk about one of the parts that honestly, like, it really got, it brought like a lot of emotion out of me was reading about the early AIDS crisis. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and how even people who weren't Christian were treating people who had AIDS. Can you kind of summarize that story yeah. about the nurse and, and, and the, and the mom? And I mean, that it's heartbreaking, but I think people need to understand just mm-hmm. how much prejudice really was um, widespread uh, mm-hmm. towards gay people. Yeah, well, I, I share a story in my book about um, one particular AIDS patient um, who uh, who developed AIDS early on in the AIDS crisis when there still wasn't a whole lot of understanding about it beyond the fact 
that it had been labeled the gay disease. Mm. Um, it was not a gay disease. Um, you know, it, you know, was already, it, it existed already around the world, um, primarily, um, hitting heterosexual people, but in the United States, it emerged, um, in the gay community first. And so it got labeled a gay disease. And so I share the story of this one particular patient, um, and he, um, lay, he, he laid alone in a hospital bed, um, by himself and there was no one there to care for him. Um, and I tell the story of this one woman who, um, found him there. Um, she was at the hospital for a different reason and saw his door and was just curious. So she went inside, found him laying there and couldn't believe that no one was helping him. Mm. The nurses weren't even going in to check on him. Yeah. Um, like this was how, uh, like monstrous gay people were, right. um, to everyone, um, and just couldn't believe it. Um, and this was down in the Bible belt. And so mm. she called up his mom and his mother hung up on her. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, this man, he was a young man, um, you know, was just dying in this hospital bed in the Bible belt. No one would come. And the thing about his story is that um, his story was just repeated over and over and over and over again yeah. um, of these gay men developing AIDS and dying alone. And no one would even, um, funeral homes wouldn't even accept their ashes, wouldn't accept, yeah. would not, I mean, Funeral homes would not accept their bodies. Um, yeah. Graveyards would not accept their ashes. And so the one woman who I talk about in my book, she would bury their ashes in her own backyard because yeah. um, she didn't know what else to do with them. Um, you know, she went to she went to church. She asked her you know, church community, if she could set up a support group for the gay community to help them deal with the crisis that was going on. Um, and the pastor responded and said, you're not talking about bringing those people into mm. the church, are you? Mm. Um, and so, you know, this was what was going on. The woman whose story I talk about is um, yeah. Ruth Coker Burks. And mm. um, she's, you know, highly regarded within the queer community, but, you know, for the most part, most people don't know about her. Yeah. Um, and most people don't know about how bad the AIDS crisis actually was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one thing that um, I didn't get to talk about in my book, hmm. I, had, I had to wind up cutting it because um, there just wasn't enough space um, and it wasn't, um, on topic enough focused on the church. Um, and so I wind up only just mentioning it briefly, but I wish I could have gone deeper into it, which is, um, that the, the religious right during this time mm. was so influential yeah. that the mindset around AIDS and the gay community influenced entire government administrations. And so the Reagan administration did not deal with AIDS at all. Like to put that in perspective, wow. that would be equivalent to us suffering the COVID crisis and like the, you know, our current presidential administrations never yeah. even talking about it, never mentioning it, not doing a single thing about it and just letting people die. And that was the Reagan administrations. Like they just ignored the whole thing. And 
Um, There was one reporter who would um, occasionally bring up the AIDS crisis to at press conferences to Reagan, Um, uh, um, not to Reagan, to Reagan's uh, press secretary. Yeah, yeah. And um, he would bring it up and every time he brought it up and you can listen to the recordings, um, you know, they're available on YouTube um, as well. You can search on Google for it. You can listen to the recordings. He'd bring up AIDS. He'd be like, well, what about AIDS? Are we going to address this crisis? Um, And the press secretary would make jokes about it. And the whole room would erupt in laughter. The press secretary would be like, oh, you're talking about the fairies, aren't you? Everybody laughter. Um, nobody took it seriously. People thought it was funny that the gay community was dying. Mm. Um, and uh, it was a- across the country that this was going on. Um, and you can really trace it back to um, the influence that the religious right had mm. on on the culture, on politics, um, on, uh, you know, how people really saw the world. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a true, true tragedy. Um, and you know, there was a whole generation of, uh, gay men that were lost during this time. Mm. Um, Mm. you know, gay men, um, trans people, um, and you know, many, many others that were lost during this time. And it was just an absolute tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I, I, I was born in 88. So Reagan was obviously passed. I think a lot of our times we're listening to this. And if you're, if, if that was your time, we love you and respect you. Okay. We're not making fun of your age here, obviously. But my point is that I didn't, you know, you just don't know what you don't, what, what you don't know. Yeah. And as I've been kind of more interested in history in general over the past couple of years, reading about some of those stories and having you share stories like that, it, it is just like, it's shocking, right? Mm-hmm. Which I, maybe is a good thing to show like how far we have come. There has been some progress made. Obviously we, we have a ways to go. Um, yeah. So I'm glad that I'm shocked and not, and not, and not shocked that, that you're writing this book, you know, I'm shocked at how we used to talk about this. Yeah. Um, yeah. One other thing I wanted, I wanted to kind of talk on a little bit is, Backing up even a little bit, a little bit before that, one thing in your book that I also stuck out to me was even how we we I, I'm going to butcher it, so forgive me in advance. But essentially, you you kind of make the connection of like how the word homosexual ends up in the Bible mm-hmm. really is more of a product a product of our uh, Western co- modern cultural lens in psychology uh, yeah. more than like an actual word for word translation. Can mm-hmm. you kind of give like a little bit of information or talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Well, um, in order to kind of understand how the word homosexual got into the Bible, um, you got to kind of go back to Freud. Um, Freud was the person who popularized Um, the use of words like homosexual, heterosexual, and bisexual. He's the one that kind of brought this into the public consciousness. Hmm. Um, And uh, he had this theory of where homosexuality comes from, and he used it to kind of um, explain how this, you know, perversion is, uh, you know, actually a product of, um, what um, he called a a arrest in the development of a child. Mm. Um, And uh, he said that when a child is developing, 
Um, if they develop um, healthy attachments to both of their parents, then they will develop into a heterosexual. Mm. If, as the child is developing, there is something that causes their development to go off track, um, whether you know it's trauma or you know uh, something you know early sexual experience before they um, ought to have one, right. or especially some kind of bad relationship with their parent, mm. um, and their relationship with their parent does not develop in the appropriate way. Yeah. Then they develop into a homosexual. Mm. Um, and um the and Freud kind of had this whole explanation for how it develops and for how homosexuality develops and the yeah. whole um you know process of it was to kind of psychopathologize um homosexual people hmm. um into this group of people that um had failed to develop in the proper way that people were supposed to develop. Like mm. heterosexuals were the right kind of people. Um, homosexuals were perverted. Their development was perverted. It was off. There was something wrong with them. Something went wrong. Right. Um, and this uh, way of thinking about homosexuality uh, just became the way to think about it. It, you know, exploded mm. in popularity overnight um, until, you know, people really couldn't fathom thinking about it in any other way. Right. Um, and it just kind of became accepted that this is where homosexuality comes from. It comes mm. from bad relationships with your parent or some kind of sexual trauma, um, something that causes this person to essentially be a broken person. Right. Um, they, you know, never actually develop in the correct way. Right. So now they are, you know, a perversion of what people ought to be. Hmm. Um, and this was just, it was just kind of what people accepted as the way it was. Um, right. And so you don't see the word homosexual ever appearing in scripture until this time. Hmm. And it was during this time that the word homosexual finally appeared in the Bible um, in the 1940s. Wow. Um, so can we pause here for one second? Yeah. And and I know that this doesn't mean that there aren't things, maybe a reference to, you know, um, I don't know, same-sex relationships, to use that terminology. Mm -hmm. But as far as what we think of, like in the Western cultural sense of, of someone who's gay or queer, that idea gets put into the Bible in mm -hmm. 1946. Well, so yeah, is that yeah. kind of correct what you're saying? Yeah. You have to understand is that when uh, we think of the word homosexual, that yeah. is a very specific concept. It okay. was, it's a very specific way of thinking about human identity that nobody had prior to the 19th century. Like it did not exist. Okay. So same sex relationships um, uh, existed, um, sexual attraction to the same sex existed, right? Nobody had ever thought of those things as encompassing a homosexual identity. Uh -huh. okay. Um, and that's what the word homosexual means. It's referring to an identity. Mm. Um, that's how it developed. Um, mm. and so, you know, when, uh, you look at the word homosexual, you have to understand that the reason why um, uh, no one ever 
referred to, you know, same-sex relationships in this way is because nobody ever thought of this composing a whole identity of who a person is. And that's what Freud did. He composed a whole identity to define a human being mm-hmm. and called it homosexual. Right. Um, and uh, then within a couple decades of Freud doing this in the 1940s, Uh, the word homosexual appears in the Bible Hmm. um, for a passage in scripture that refers to, uh, um, to men having sexual relationships with each other. And so, and you can see what happened at this time um, because, uh, you know, this passage in the Bible, first Corinthians six, nine um, translated literally first Corinthians six, nine is referring to men who sleep with men. Right. Um, And that is what it says. It does not say homosexual. Right. But after all of this developed, the biblical translators could not look at those words and not see right. homosexual and not right. see this as like the identity that the Bible is talking about when, when it right. wasn't, it, right. you know, it's not talking about that. Um, and when you start to unpack, you know, what the Bible is talking about there, um, it starts to get a whole lot more complicated yeah. Um, yeah. than, you know, just pointing the finger and saying, you know, yeah, this person is a homosexual. He is defined by, you know, sexual perversion and um, is condemned by God in the Bible. Um, it's yeah. not that simple, but when you yeah. stick the word in there, it makes it a whole lot more. It, it makes it seem like it's simple. Yeah, um, I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it's one of those things where as you um as you realize this more and more, you realize that like, wow, okay. Um, it's not necessarily as cut and dry as we think. And, and obviously mm-hmm. our modern translations, we have to be aware that they, that they are exactly that translations for our cultural context. And sometimes mm-hmm. we're going to impose our, you know, 21st century thinking Western brains mm-hmm. onto a text that maybe isn't claiming to at mm-hmm. least have the same context behind what's actually happening. Yeah. And I think that's exactly. important because, you know, we hear a lot from a lot of people in evangelicalism, the Bible's clear, the Bible's clear, the Bible's clear. Yep. And I think a lot of people who might be in this more, um, maybe deconstruction or just kind of like rethinking their faith or trying to mm-hmm. understand it better in yeah. that camp are like, actually, the more I'm I'm reading and learning theology and learning about cultural context, the murkier a lot of these issues become, not yeah. even just this one, but yeah. a lot of issues become. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good reminder because uh, I just think that a lot of us have been told, you know, the Bible says it, uh, God said it, that settles it kind of, you know, thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the reality is like life, it's just not that cut and dry. So I appreciate you kind of, you know, I know that you really dig into that in, in your book. I think there's a whole chapter or two devoted to it. So yep. we can we can just give people the tease right here and let, let mm-hmm. them go ahead and, go ahead and read. But I yeah. did find that part very helpful to at least have a, have better shelf space for some of this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Of like, okay, so it, yes, in a way the Bible does refer to, right, two men having sexual relations together, but that's different than this identity that we're talking about in mm-hmm. a Western context. And also, why are they having that relationship? That's important to recognize and all the other kinds of, you know, things that kind of go into that, that yeah. we just assume the Bible means, oh yeah, 21st century, you know, 
queerness, I guess. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I, you know, trying to accomplish with the book. Um, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, my, my book is not necessarily trying to convince people to, you know, adopt one way of thinking about things or another. Um, yeah. what I'm really hoping to do, um, when it comes to, um, how people think theologically about yeah. this issue is to just make things a little bit messier yeah. um, to like get people to see how complicated this really is yeah. um, that, you know, the things that we think are cut and dry are really not so cut and dry. And really the only reason why they appear that way to so many people is because so many people aren't queer. And so they don't actually have to wrestle with the real implications of these yes. verses. Um, yeah. And so I, that's one thing that I'm really trying to bring out um, in my book. Well, there was one more, speaking of complicated and messy, there's one more you know, final issue I really want to tease out for people that yeah. honestly really blew me away. I mean, I remember reading it thinking to myself, wow. So people often talk about how clear the Bible is on this issue, how, how clear the Bible is even on sexuality, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the Bible is super clear. It's one man, one woman for life. And, yeah. and, you know, sex is designed to be, you know, pleasing and fun and pleasurable. I mean, yeah. there are entire, you know, books written by people who we will not mention because they currently have podcasts about their church coming out right now, you know, about how abusive <laughs> the situations were, but they've written yeah. entire books about, about all different kinds of ways that people who are straight should have sex. I mean, yeah. detailed graphic ways, right? Yeah. And it's pleasurable, yeah. mm -hmm. but it turns out Bridget, according to your book and research, that's a fairly new you know, construction of really Western culture that we've reimposed back into not only the Bible, but church tradition. Yeah. So you have the floor on this one. Can you please enlighten <laughs> us? Because I think this is going to blow so many of us away. Yeah. And I guess this kind of, you know, gets to wanting to complicate things um, yeah. because um, the whole idea, I, I think in our, in our culture, um, in, in church culture today, I think we're kind of taught that sex before marriage is a no, no, mm -mm. Yes, can't do right. it. Sex outside of heterosexual marriage. That's bad sin. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, but once you get married, it's like, you know, the, the gates are open. That's right. You can go and it's sexual paradise That's from right. here on in. That's what your spouse is for. That's right. It's like endless sexual pleasure forever. Until That's what I was thought. Heaven. Nirvana yeah. is, 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 you know, count down the days, baby, because mm -hmm. Nirvana's coming, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. And you like, it's not even like, that's not even my interpretation. Like you can read it explicitly <laughs> stated in yes. the, you know, some of these books about countless sex and books. marriage, totally. countless, countless. Um, and uh, it's interesting because uh, when you look at uh, many of the church fathers, that's not what they believed hmm. um, at all. Um, and uh, um, one of the things that I talk about is the issue of contraception yeah. and birth control. Yeah. Um, and th the purpose of my book is not to tell people don't use birth control. <laughs> right. Um, right. I, I, you know, I, and I don't want to be understood as saying that because again, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make things a little messier for people. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the things that I think we have to really deal with yeah. um, is the fact 
that um, for most of church history, sodomy was not understood as being homosexuality. Yeah. Um, That definition of sodomy, that common definition, um, is really only in the past century and a half that that has developed. Mm. Again, along with, you know, some of the things that we were talking about um, with Freud and the development of um, sexual orientation. For prior to that, um, sodomy was understood as um, any act of sexual intercourse that was not for the purpose of procreation. Um, And you can read um, even some of our Protestant church fathers, like Martin Luther, calling um, contraceptive sex um, sodomy um, Mm. and condemning uh, people who engaged in it um, and calling married couples Um, who uh, were engaging in contraceptive sex um, to not be couples, that they were were engaging in sodomitical acts. Um, They were not even married, according to Luther. Wow. Um, And this was pretty much a universal position um, up until very, very recently um, through the Protestant Reformation up until probably a century and a half ago. Um, and, uh, that's something that we really have to deal with because today I, uh, you know, don't know how many times I've heard, uh, um, a straight Christian, um, accuse, um, a gay person of sodomy. Right. Um, and, uh, well, okay. If you believe that sodomy is such a horrendous sin, Right. right. Then what do you do with the fact that for most of church history, right. the Bible was understood as condemning right. your sex life right. more than likely as yeah. being sodomitical? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I point out in the book is Romans 127, um, which most people quote Romans 127 to condemn gay people. And Romans 127 talks about how, you know, these men and women um, gave themselves over to to unnatural acts. Right. Um, And I point out and I quote some different um, people um, in my book, and they're talking about Romans 127, but they're not talking about it in reference to homosexuality. Yeah. They're talking about it in reference to a husband and a wife engaging in sexual relationships, but preventing, yeah. but preventing pregnancy. Right. I mean, that's like, that's hand sex, <laughs> that's oral sex, that's pulling yeah. out. I mean, let's call it what it is. Yeah. You know, like yeah. things that, that many people mm-hmm. do often, right. Mm-hmm. Is suddenly now like actually yeah. widely condemned. By yeah. The church yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you look at Romans 127 and you have to realize like, whoa, this verse was not understood as condemning homosexuality. It was understood as condemning all non-procreative sex. Right. And it was used for centuries, for millennia 
to condemn all non-procreative sex, not homosexuality. Right. And if we're going to play devil's advocate, which I actually did, so I didn't tell anyone this, but I'll tell you this. <laughs> I'll tell the audience this. So a few days ago, I get, sometimes I get people in my DMs who just want to argue a lot. You know, they're, they're kind of trolly, but they're willing to engage. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll kind of play ball, you know? So I wanted to test this theory out because I, I, I'm thinking like, well, you know, people often say, well, listen, you know, the Bible's clear. And even if you get away from like the clobber verses, you have the story of Adam and Eve where God is super clear, right? The first ever marriage, whatever that yeah. even means, right? And so one <laughs> of the things about that though is that what's God's command? Be fruitful and multiply, not yep. have enjoyable, fun sex, right? <laughs> so I was talking to someone about this because it, the issue, of course, of queerness came up and I was saying how I'm affirming and they go to the Bible and I go, well, you know, how about, how about, you know, um, contraceptives? They go, what do you mean? I said, well, the Bible is very clear. I mean, if we're going to read the Bible, the Bible is very <laughs> clear. God's command is for mm -hmm. people to be fruitful and multiply. I swear to you, Bridget, I can show you the messages. This person didn't even get that I was trolling them. They could not understand. <laughs> and then the, what, the, what, what do they do? They start appealing to like cultural arguments. You know, mm -hmm. well, are you saying wearing a condom is wrong? Well, are you saying this is bad? Sex should yeah. be pleasurable. And I said, well, show me where the Bible says that. Show mm -hmm. me where the, the command is. Make yeah. sure you have a lot of fun when engaging in sex. Yeah. It's not there. All yeah. you can read is be fruitful and multiply. So yeah. it's it just, I think it's a good experiment to mm -hmm. show how, and again, I, I don't want to bash those people because I understand mm -hmm. a lot of them, they think that they mean well, but yeah. they can't see the forest from the trees. They can't yeah. understand how, whenever they use the term, the Bible is clear, how much of like, Today, church history, Martin Luther himself would balk at. I mean, yeah. Martin Luther viewed Mary as sinless for crying out loud. You know, yeah. we would yeah. call we would call him a heretic for that. Yeah. So I think mm -hmm. it, I think there's definitely a very important part of the conversation that we have to realize that biblical interpretation is an ongoing process, and yeah. our cultural mm -hmm. context, no matter where we live in history will influence is that Im is impacting that. And yes. that's one of the things that I, I am hoping to kind of show people. Um, and, and to your point about, you know, the experiment that you did, I think, you know, it really um, is important to kind of shed a light on that because, you know, what you'll see is you will see people want to, you know, be very hard line totally. um, on when it comes to any Bible verse that they see as talking about homosexuality. Like this yep. is what it means. That's final. You know, that's just it. We're not going to look into context. We're not going to figure out, you know, right. whether or not there's, you know, other interpretations that might mean different things. That's what it says. It's final. Yeah. But right. as soon as you start talking about passages that relate to something that impacts their sex life. Yep. Yep. Suddenly it's, oh, but, you know, that was during that time. We have yeah. to understand it, you know, within totally. our culture today. Totally. And like, let's look deeper at what this word means in that word. And like, <laughs> right. let's textualize right. like all of a sudden the Bible right. is complicated right but when they're talking about something that doesn't impact them like homosexuality yeah. now the Bible yeah. is clear yeah and it's like okay that's a double standard like totally. totally what actually is the right way to approach scripture now because you have two ways of approaching it and you that's don't right even see. that's yeah. exactly right and I also found another one that that I'll well I'll, I'll put it this way what was convincing for me back like even years ago the first like seeds of that idea being planted mm -hmm. of like wait a second like something something isn't completely correct here was when I realized that obviously, 
you know, nowadays we know that slave owners in America were evil, vile people for owning mm-hmm. other people, but mm-hmm. realizing that they use the Bible quite, quite articulately, you mm-hmm. know, and complicated in complicated ways. They had their theologies and they had their, 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 their verses. Mm-hmm. Look guys, Paul says, slave obey your masters. That's proof. Number one. Then you yeah. had the whole, you know, the whole, I think it's ham, you know, the, the uh, mm-hmm. from, from, from Noah's Ark and this, they had all their complicated theologies worked out of why yeah. the Bible supports it. We look back now, you know, a hundred years later and we go, what were they thinking? Right. Yeah. And and now as well, if you tell people, well, the Bible supports slavery, they do the same exact thing. No, no, no. Understand the cultural context. So why in almost every issue, whether mm-hmm. it's it's women in leadership, whether it's whatever else, mm-hmm. do we should and we should, by the way, contextualize the Bible and understand mm-hmm. what's going on. But when it comes to homosexuality, suddenly it's like, no, no, no. That yeah. that one thing is super clear. Like, guys, that's that's not fair. It's just yeah. not. It's not a fair yeah. argument. Yeah, exactly. And um, I I think that, you know, what's important to kind of understand and and recognizing this is the fact that um, whenever we approach the Bible, we are always approaching it from within our own culture and within our own context. And that is always impacting how we understand what we're reading. Um, And so on that level, um, you know, and this doesn't mean that we can never know God's word and his truth that he has for us. Um, you know, that's, that's not what that means, but yeah. it does mean that in pursuing God's truth, um, we have to pursue it with a level of humility and yeah. knowing that yeah. our, our sight is limited. Um, you know, we are viewing it through our own lens and, you know, we can make a lot of efforts to remove that lens and try to understand, you know, what it's saying when it was written. Um, but we're always going to be limited in those efforts. You know, we can, you know, we can, um, correct for our own cultural position, um, to an extent, but never all the way. And so we have to have a level, excuse me. We have to have a level of humility um, when we start talking about um, what we believe the Bible says um, and how we interpret scripture. And I don't think enough people have that humility. Yeah. I mean, listen, I know you and I kind of had some similar upbringings, kind of, I think you were homeschooled as well as I was. Mm -hmm. was. And so, you know, we under, I understand, like I grew up in that world. I was you know, one of the the big proponents of that world. I, you know, was one of those people like, you know, we have to get back to the truth of the Bible and the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I think honestly, it, it was in my earnest zeal to do that, that kind of got me to where I am today. Right. Of yeah. like, well, yeah. if we really want to understand the Bible, if we, if we're really serious about taking the Bible, you know, as seriously as possible, and there's yep. good reasons to do that. The more we dig and understand the context and and, and even just bigger than that, even how we got our modern Bibles, all that stuff, it helps, it helps to give, it helps, I think, to sit us in our cultural moments. Yeah. Right. Like I think about, I think about Paul when he's writing in, in the, uh, the epistles and you have the story in acts where, where he gets the, the commission together and they're discussing circumcision, which is like mind blowing for the time. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, is God's, 
you know, is the Holy Spirit expanding outside, you know, to the Gentile now? Like that makes no sense. And I yeah. think it's Peter who has the vision of the, of the food, which is symbolic. You know, it's like, there's so much happening even there, right. Of like, of, of this inclusive presence being expanded mm-hmm. outward and yeah. you have the same arguments mm-hmm. and, and you can trace all of that throughout, you know, church history. You just can. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important that we realize that we're sitting in a cultural moment yeah. and, and, and there is still time to repent for the exclusivity we've made this gospel message to be and start looking at what it means to be more inclusive um, in all kinds of ways. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. the queer uh, community, of course, included in that, but in all other kinds of ways as well, even how we view, like you mentioned in your book, how we view gender and masculine, um, you know, expression and feminine expression that, Mm -hmm. that has really, you know, stuck with me as well, because I've thought to myself, like, yeah, like who says that, you know, blue is a boy's color and pink is a boy's a girl's color. And Mm -hmm. if if I paint my nails, why is that considered weird? But if a girl does it, it's not like who makes these rules, right? Who makes, who makes these rules up? Do you want to kind of maybe talk a little about a little bit about like what it was like researching that for you? And maybe if that changed anything as, as you were doing the work. Yeah, well, it was, it was really interesting. Um, One of the things that really surprised me um, was digging into uh, the kind of foundational text of the biblical manhood and womanhood. Mm, um, That's a big one. Movement um, written or edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. um, And, you know, a lot of the you know, they have, they have aspects that they wrote and then the rest they edited oversaw the development of and, um, uh, recovering biblical manhood and womanhood. Yes. That was the name of it. I, I sometimes like, cause Amy bird wrote recovering from biblical, oh, manhood, gotcha. uh, which is an excellent book as well. But the, uh, the original text edited by Piper and Grudem is recovering biblical manhood and womanhood. And gotcha. so I, you know, dug into that more, um, uh, as a result of writing this book. And, uh, one of the things that surprised me was uh, how the writers in this book explicitly relied upon secular cultural messages mm. to defend what they were saying about how men and women ought to look, sound, and act. Mm. Um, and uh, I talk in in my book about how most of these rules that we have for masculinity and femininity are, um, really culturally driven. They're not these objective laws. (laughs) Um, and you know, if someone, you know, doesn't fit that mold, they're not being sinful, you know, they're not rebelling against God. They just don't fit that box. I mean, there's nothing wrong with not fitting into the box that, you know, secular culture has made worldly culture has made. Um, but it's interesting if you read recovering biblical manhood and womanhood, they actually use that logic to defend the fact that God has ordained for us to behave in specific ways that our culture demands. Right. Um, and they will say the culture tells us that men look this way, that men act this way. Therefore a godly man ought to look and act those ways. Right. Our culture says that women ought to look this way and act this way. Therefore a godly woman ought to look and act those ways. Um, and it's so interesting that, you know, my whole life I was taught 
by conservative evangelicalism, that culture needs to be renewed right. by the gospel, that we need to be counter-cultural. Um, but when you read Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, culture is suddenly determinative mm. of gender mm. roles and how we need to um, meet those expectations of gender, of masculinity. Wow femininity. And it's, it's so confusing. It doesn't make sense. Um, and, uh, you know, they would say, um, no, you know, we, this is what our culture says. So that's how we have to act, um, in order to, you know, right. present this correctly to the culture, but you know, why aren't Christians supposed to challenge the culture? Right? Um, aren't right. we supposed to be salt and light, um, in the darkness? Yes. So, yeah, it, it's 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 very confusing and, and contradictory, um, and uh, you know ultimately um, does not help the the many people that don't fit these boxes that culture has said we need to fit into, um, and you know we really need to find ways to think about. Um, gender expression yes. um, in a way that just allows people more freedom um, yeah. to, you know, be who God has made them to be right. um, outside of like squeezing them into these very specific ways. That no, I, I think that's so good. I mean, I, I'm thinking about how that touches on um, Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dumay. It touches mm -hmm. on uh, Beth Allison Barr's book, the, um, oh, what's it called? The making of biblical womanhood. Mm -hmm. I think even how you, it sounds like, I'm not sure if you read uh, Preston Sprinkle's book. I think it's called embodied. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, I haven't it, read it yet. Well, it, it draw. It, it, there's a lot of work that he does really doing, I think a good job of exactly what you're saying, explaining how like, well, when does like culture dictate gender in, in the sense of, of, or, you know, whatever it is, you know, or sexuality, even mm -hmm. in the way that, that we perceive it to be, you know, mm -hmm. boys play with guns and girls play with Barbies. And if, if, if that's not true, is that okay? Like, is, is it okay for a guy to wear a dress? For example, obviously yeah. if I was in, if I was in ancient Rome, probably yes. It'd be, it'd be the norm <laughs> not wearing jeans and Nikes. Right. Yeah. So I, I think it's a good example of, like you said, how much culture changes and that's, that's fine. Like I, I, those aren't moral topics They're just, it's just what people do, how they organize. Yeah. But in our specific culture and our evangelical upbringing, it was like, no mm -hmm. girls wear the jean skirts, boys wear the khaki pants, you know, it's like, and this is how God designed it when yeah. really it's, um, man, I don't want to sound, you know, too off the rails here, but it's just, in my view, kind of manipulative, you know, like it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a form of spiritual gaslighting that I think is one of the reasons why we're seeing this explosion of people in their, their late twenties, thirties, mm -hmm. obviously they're, they're older and younger, younger than, than that too. But mm -hmm. the, it seems like the epicenter is in that like middle to elder millennial mm -hmm. phase. I was like, wait, I'm an adult now I'm married or whatever, you know, like yeah. I'm in my thirties. I don't have to like, I have to rethink all of this. I have to rethink all of this stuff I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us are realizing that a lot of it, while maybe well-intentioned was actually very harmful and, and, yeah. and kind of gave us some weird norms that are not normal. And we have, we need therapy. <laughs> Yeah. That's why I'm in therapy. <laughs> 100%. And that's why I'm in therapy too. And yeah. I think that's, that's one thing that I hope people realize uh, when they're reading heavy burdens is that this yeah. is not just an issue for queer people. Yeah. While the things that I talk about impact queer people the most, um, these things that I talk about 
impact everyone in the church in uh, numerous ways that are harmful. Um, And, you know, I I think everybody has felt it to one degree or another. And that's why we are seeing um, so many people deconstructing right now. So many people, you know, feeling like, you know, what am I, where am I, what's going on? Like this, you know, doesn't make sense anymore, you know? And, you know, there's a reason for that. Um, And it's because the religion that was passed down to us is um, suffocating um, and not, and not reflective of the true gospel that is found in scripture. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, we have a few minutes left, so I guess we can kind of, you know, end on, on this trajectory. But uh, I think one of the hardest things on a personal level for both my wife and I is sorting out like, okay, what's following Jesus versus what's the evangelical culture we inherited. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've always been given as one package. They've, they've always been welded together. And now yeah. it's like, well, okay. So, you know, what are, what, what, what moral things were I taught that turns out we're just cultural that really aren't moral or, or right or wrong at all versus mm-hmm. like, actually, maybe we should use wisdom here to make a wise decision. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. that's probably, probably, probably one of the most difficult things for me to do is just to realize like, man, there definitely was some Jesus in there, but it's really intertwined with a lot of junk yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to separate it. It is. It's very hard to separate it. And I mean, there's always, um, you know, that stereotype of the like really, really sheltered, you know, kid that yeah. like, you know, was really like, you know, just kind of imprisoned their whole life. And then yeah. they kind of break away from that life and they just yep. go completely wild right, right, <laughs> and do right. everything. Right. <laughs> well, it's I, like, well, I, yeah. you know, you know, there's a lot that you want to let go of and now embrace, but there's other stuff, you know, you don't want to just completely go off the deep end either. And so, you know, yeah. you want to, you know, know what is worth holding on to um, and, you know, what is, you know, what needs to be let go of. And it's, it's a journey figuring that out. I think. I think you're right. Um, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And I, I understand the inclination just to go crazy, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, and, you know, if, if we're going to be real, uh, real biblical, everything is lawful or permissible, but not lawful or whatever Paul says, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, everything is we- lawful, but not everything is beneficial. Yes, yeah. thank you. That's mm-hmm. exactly it. You know, so it's like, <laughs> oh, I guess we can, you know, but um, yeah, anyway, it's just, it's, it's a very interesting time to be, you know, alive in 2021. It's a, it's a, it's a unique time in history. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot happening. I I, listen, history tells the story, right? Not, not me or not you ultimately, but it seems like in this moment, at least in America and for Western evangelicalism, there seems to be like a real reckoning maybe for the first time in a long time, at least Mm -hmm. of, of, of people confronting, um, these kinds of beliefs that were saying, well, you know, if the rate of suicide for the queer community is higher, if they're in church, right. Which is, mm-hmm. which is, I think is the only group that is actually at a higher risk of, of, of suicide. If they're in church, maybe we have to seriously rethink mm-hmm. everything about how we approach this community and how we work with them. Because yep. clearly if we're, if we're killing them, frankly, that is really problematic and we have to address that. Yep. 100%. And, um, I think a thing that I hope people understand is that when we're talking about this conversation, yeah. uh, we're not just talking about, um, people who are uncomfortable in church. 
Um, we are talking about people who are dying in church and that needs to be understood. The stakes need to be understood. The stakes are extremely high. And if we get this wrong and we have been getting it wrong, people will die. Yeah. People have been dying. Yeah. Well, um, Bridget, I appreciate you making time and talking about the book. Um, the book is out, uh, October 26th. Is that the date? Yep. October 26th. So depending on when I release this, I'm going to try and have it out maybe like the day after. So we can say, go buy the book right away. Uh, But if for some reason it's out before, make sure you at least pre-order it. Uh, Pick up the book. Honestly, friends, like I said, a thousand and one times now, it is a great read. It's a very um, easy read in a good way. It's like 200 pages. You can read it in a few sittings. It's full of information and um, things to make you really just think about, about your own context, right? And like, okay, this is just fascinating to understand. And hopefully, like you said, it leads to conversations. I think, and I hope that pastors will, will pick this up and actually yeah. read it. You know, like, I think that they are the ones who need to hear this the most because they're, they, they lead so many, so many of these congregations and they control, um, you know, the, uh, the thermostat really in a lot of ways. Right. Yep. So I'm hoping that, that this gets in their hands and that, you know, it really starts to change the tide. Same. I, I hope the same. Uh, and you know, we'll, we'll see what God does with it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Bridget, I'm sure we'll have you on again for a fourth time. <laughs> Who knows when, who knows when some crazy things going to come up. I'm like, Bridget, we got to talk about this. So. <laughs> I would love to anytime. I always love talking. Yeah. Likewise. All right. I'll catch up with you soon. Bye.